So a new year has come, and with this year comes a season for which we all share mixed feelings. 2024 gives us another presidential election. With Iowa caucuses one week away, news feeds are buzzing. It's a time when politicians of all stripes want your approval. It's a time when we examine their leadership. Do they have the character? Are they competent? Is their platform just? We, the people, like that ultimate political power rests with us, the consent of the governed. But we must be careful that such a political model, while good, doesn't produce the wrong attitude when approaching Jesus. We can't approach Jesus by saying, only if we consent. Jesus does not need or seek your approval. When the Gospels present Jesus, it's less about us examining him and more about him examining us. Jesus is king, whether you like it or not. Matthew's Gospel has been trying to help us recognize Jesus' authority as king. Last Sunday, uh, we studied the first part of Matthew 21, where Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, very deliberately. And he does this to fulfill the words of Zechariah 9 and show his identity as God's ultimate king. Well, today, Jesus enters Jerusalem again, only this time he enters the temple, kind of the religious epicenter of God's covenant people. And there he performs several acts that further disclose his authority as the rightful king. He comes not to be examined. He comes to examine. So read with me from verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple. He drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, They were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. I see three parts to this passage. God's temple cleansed. That's verses 12 and 13. The broken healed. That's verse 14. And God's majesty revealed. It's verses 15 and 16. So God's temple cleansed. The broken healed. And God's majesty revealed. Let's start with God's temple cleansed. The the temple played an important uh, part uh, in the history of God's dealings with Israel. The temple reminded the people of God's holiness, right? God is unique. Uh, He is set apart majestically and morally. Uh, He is in a category by himself. And so for sinners to approach God, 
they must do so on his terms and by his gracious permission, provision. And so the, the temple was also the place of God's provision. It was the place of God's holiness. It was also the place of God's provision. He, he made a way for sinners to approach by way of sacrifice. And he even uh, characterized him, his, his dwelling as, as, as one where he sits above the mercy seat and atones for sins. But the ultimate point of the temple was always God's presence. God was never limited to an earthly temple, but he revealed his glory in the temple, and that was to remind the people of his presence. He is the God who dwells with his people for their benefit. Israel was to see in the temple a reminder of Eden and how this world began when God dwelled with his people and walked with them. But not only Israel, God had goals for the temple that extended beyond Israel. In verse 13, Jesus mentions one of them. One of the prophecies from Isaiah 56. Uh, This is Isaiah 56, verses 6 and 7. He speaks of foreigners. Foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be His servants. These, he says, I will bring to my holy mountain. The holy mountain was where the temple was. I will bring to my holy mountain and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And so not just Israel, but all peoples could find their sins covered and access to God in prayer. Well, that's not what Jesus finds when he enters the temple. He enters the outer courts for Gentiles, the foreigners that Isaiah was talking about. And he finds this place bustling with trade. The Lord had made provision for Gentile prayer, but they had replaced it with Jewish commerce. They had turned his house of prayer into a marketplace. The temple grounds weren't meant for business deals, but for meeting with God and standing amazed at his gracious provision. Jesus doesn't find that. And so in verse 12, Jesus enters the temple and he drives out all who were selling and buying. He overturns uh, the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. How surprising this must have seemed. I mean, this is supposed to be Israel's Messiah. He's supposed to come in and, and deal with Rome. But Jesus deals with Israel. His judgments start with those who were calling themselves the people of God. And clearly, Jesus is angry. And some of us might find his actions disturbing. Flipping tables? Really? Isn't this a bit harsh? This doesn't seem very nice. But perhaps that says more about how little we know Jesus. And how little we regard the Lord's honor. Still, there are a few things we must remember about this scene. And one is that Jesus acts alone. Jesus acts alone. The the crowd surrounding him the day before, well, they're not asked to participate or to follow him in this act. It's a unique act reserved for the one who's qualified for this moment. It was Jesus who said earlier in Matthew, chapter 12, verse 6, I tell you, 
something greater than the temple is here. And Jesus stands above the temple. He is most qualified to speak to its proper use and examine its abuse by others. He knows what it's about. He's even going to replace it soon. We should also remember that Jesus isn't in this in this fit of rage, like he just came into the city and flew off the handle. You might get the impression that he, he's come, he comes straight to the temple after riding into town, but Mark's gospel tells us that the first day he comes into town, he comes into the temple and he just looks around. And then he goes and, and, and sleeps in Bethany. And then he returns the next day. So he stays a night, thinks on things. Jesus has carefully planned out his actions here. Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus, when he's coming in to the, 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 the temple area, he weeps over the city before he performs this act. What we observe in Jesus is best described by John's gospel as zeal for God's house. Jesus has a holy jealousy that God be honored in his people and in his house. But even more, Jesus' act reminds us of a prophecy spoken by Malachi. Malachi chapter 3. I'll read some of this. Chapter 3 of Malachi, verses 1 to 5. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And remember earlier in Matthew's Gospel, we talked about that passage in relation to John the Baptist, preparing the way for Jesus the Lord. And... Uh, So he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. And like Fuller's soap, verse 5 goes on to say, I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me. In Jesus' actions, we witness the Lord himself coming to his temple coming both to purify and to judge. Again, he's not there for people to examine him. He's there to examine the people. And so what we see here is Jesus taking charge and exposing their hypocrisy. They have perverted God's intent for the temple. They have turned God's house of prayer into a den of robbers, he calls it. Now that phrase, den of robbers, it comes from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. And in that context, the robber is basically kind of a stand-in for a lawbreaker, a covenant breaker. And uh, and so it's kind of illustrating things where this robber kind of goes off and he, you know, he does his dirty deed and then uh, and then he runs to find shelter in some hideout. And Jeremiah uses that to point out that that Israel was like this in relation to the temple. They'd steal murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, practice idolatry, oppress widows and sojourners, and then they would run to the temple like a hiding place and say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, we will be delivered. But Jeremiah basically says, that's not safe. 
You may think you're safe by using the temple that way, like a hideout, but there's no safety for lawbreakers there. For those who pervert the temple's purpose, there's no safety in the temple. And that's what Jesus is telling these Jews. You may think you're safe because of this temple, but there's no safety in God's presence for those who pervert God's purposes. If all you want is this temple without a life-changing nearness to God, then you've missed the point of the temple. Brothers and sisters, there is no true temple in Jerusalem today. After His resurrection, Jesus replaced it with a better and permanent one. The temple of His own body. And all who come to Jesus by faith, we, he, he makes us into His temple. He gives you access to God. Peter tells us that we Christians are like living stones being built up into a holy temple. Paul tells us that our body is where the Holy Spirit chooses to reside. So it's not a building or a place to go to. We are now the temple in the Lord. But the temple, the point of the temple is still God's presence. God's holy presence dwelling with us. We were saved to walk with God and be with God. So we must never think that we're safe if all we want are the motions of Christianity without a life-changing nearness to God. We shouldn't want to do anything that perverts God's purpose for His temple, whether that's the church as temple or our own bodies as temple. Everything we should want, in everything, we should want to commune with God in prayer, enjoy His presence, and help others do the same. But to pervert God's purpose for the temple is to set ourselves against Jesus. Jesus comes here as Lord of His temple. He comes to examine the people and He finds them in grave error. They have defiled what is sacred. And there are times where we have done the same with God's temple. But what I also find amazing about Jesus quoting Isaiah 56 here is that it follows Isaiah 53 to 55. And it's there that we learn of this special servant in Israel. The servant suffers as our substitute. Isaiah 53 says that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. By his death, we know the forgiveness of sins. And Isaiah 54, after that suffering servant dies and, and talks about the forgiveness and the righteousness offered in himself... Isaiah 54 breaks into singing, celebrating the results of the servant's work. Multitudes are pouring into the heritage of God's people. And then in Isaiah 55, God invites more from the nations to come. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, right? It's the call to all of us to come and find life in what this servant has accomplished. And then we get to Isaiah 56, where God mentions the foreigners 
that we read about earlier. And God will be their inheritance. And they will find community within His walls. And they will get a name that's better than sons and daughters. These are the ones that God incorporates into His house of prayer, into His temple. All because of the saving work of the servant. The religious leaders of Jesus' day perverted God's purpose for the temple. Jesus comes to fulfill God's purpose for the temple. And part of that includes Jesus exposing their evil as Lord over the temple. And part of that includes Jesus giving His life to inaugurate the blessings that were far better than what that temp- the temple of their day could ever offer. That older temple was always pointing forward to Jesus. Jesus proves here that He is Lord over all. He comes to examine us and find us lacking, and yet we also learn that He's taking a path that will cost His life to bring us into the very presence of God. And that leads to a second scene in the temple where where we also find the broken healed. The broken healed. Verse 14 says, And the blind and the lame came to Him in the temple, and He healed them. Now, Matthew's gospel includes numerous uh, times where he kind of summarizes Jesus' healing ministry. Uh, and, And it usually says things like, And He healed every disease and affliction. Or, He healed all who were sick. But here, Matthew gets specific. The blind and the lame came to him and he healed them. And so why focus on these two? I think this is part of Matthew portraying Jesus as the better son of David. The better king. Think about it with me from 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 6 to 10. You got this scene where Samuel anoints David as king in Hebron. The passage then speaks of David and his men. They go to Jerusalem uh, to attack the Jebusites. Jerusalem was not yet Israel's city, but soon it's going to become Zion, the city of David. David's going to come conquer the city. But in the process, they, they encounter some Jebusites, some warriors, and they mock David. Jerusalem was a fortress... And they didn't think David had the power to defeat them, so they mocked David, saying, you won't come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. So this is their way of saying that even the weakest of men are going to defeat David. Well, pride comes before the fall. David takes the city, and, and, and he tells his men, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. Now, there's questions about what David meant. I mean, later, we find him caring well for Mephibosheth, who was lame. So even if he hated the lame literally there, his desires apparently shift over time. More likely, he's using the lame and the blind figuratively to repeat how the Jebusites themselves were mocking David. Regardless, though, the text says this in 2 Samuel 5, 8. Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. 
The blind and the lame shall not come into the the house. What a contrast this becomes when set against the picture of Jesus, who's now in God's house, who on his way into God's house was proclaimed to be the son of David. And now the blind and the lame, they come to this son of David, and instead of finding themselves excluded, they find themselves included. Jesus heals them, and in doing so, makes another statement about himself. He is the merciful king who welcomes the broken into God's house. God shows mercy to the one who comes to Jesus in their need. Note the stark contrast between the first scene in this chapter, or in our passage today, and this one here. Jesus chases out those who are buying and selling, and he welcomes those who could never buy or sell. The blind and the lame would be able to afford a sacrifice. They sense their great need. They run to Jesus for answers. And that's what Jesus invites all of us to do in our brokenness, in our helplessness, is to come to him for mercy. Come to, come to Jesus to find yourself incorporated into God's house. Come to Jesus to gain access to God's presence and kingdom. I didn't read this earlier, but Isaiah 56, uh, verse 8, so same, just the verse after that Jesus quotes uh, above here. Isaiah 56, verse 8, describes the Lord as the God who gathers the outcasts. And here is Jesus gathering the outcasts into God's presence. That's who he is. That's what he came for. I wonder if you feel like an outcast. Do you sense your own brokenness? Well, friend, that doesn't mean you have no chance for salvation. It makes you the perfect candidate for salvation. So draw near to Jesus in your brokenness and you will find yourself accepted into God's house as well. And then finally, let's look at one more scene here. God's majesty revealed. Uh, In verse 15, it tells us, But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, I want to stop there just for a second, because the... Those words, the wonderful things. So the word behind that English phrase appears only here in the New Testament. There are some cognates that appear uh, elsewhere. Um, But this word appears only here in the New Testament. That same word appears 31 times in the Psalms. Like Psalm chapter 9, verse 1. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. Psalm 72, 18. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Or Psalm 139. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Jesus has just healed the lame and the blind. 
And this is Matthew's way of kind of nodding to the deeds of Yahweh in the Old Testament. What Jesus did in the temple should have reminded the religious leaders of Yahweh. It should have led them to sing praises and and psalms and hymns to him. And instead, they're bothered by those who are singing. Look at verse 15 again. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what they're saying? They can't believe Jesus lets them keep on praising him. They're going too far, Jesus. They're praising you. Can't you hear that? And Jesus says, yeah. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, he obviously means to say, you haven't read your Bibles very well. But what else is he saying here? Turn with me to Psalm 8. Psalm chapter 8. Page 450, if you're using a pew Bible. David begins... The psalm, you can see, if you just glance, glance at verse 1 and then also verse 9. Okay, and you can see there that he begins the psalm and ends it with these same words. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And he says, you've set your glory above the heavens. His glory, in other words, is so great that even the heavens can't contain its fullness. God's majesty here overwhelms David. A couple years ago, my family and I traveled to Yellowstone. A highlight for me, though, was passing through the Teton mountain ridge uh, on the way. The highest peaks are called the Cathedral Group. Uh, and they are just these massive rocks. Um, and they, they have, when you, the closer you get to them, the, they just have this imposing greatness about them. David here is awestruck by the Lord's imposing greatness. Much like we'd feel at the base of, a, of towering mountains. And he says, how majestic is your name. But what also informs David's praise of God's majesty is the willingness of this same God to condescend to man, to come down to man. And so verses 2 through 8 then take this unexpected turn. We encounter these two paradoxes. Okay, the second paradox comes in verses 3 to 8. We won't have time to cover that today, but if you want some homework, 
Go home, read that, and Hebrews 2, and you'll figure it out. But the first paradox comes in verse 2. Uh, this majestic God chooses to humiliate his enemies with the praise of babies and infants. It's not what you'd expect a warrior to take into battle against his enemies. And yet, verse 2 says, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. So God uses the totally helpless to shame those who think they're strong. And that's happening as Jesus quotes these words. God is using helpless children who get the praise of Jesus right to silence the religious leaders in Israel. The religious elites think they're protecting the kingdom of God, but Jesus is saying, no, no, the kingdom of God belongs to those like these children. The real enemies here are you guys, the Pharisees and the scribes. So Jesus judges the religious establishment and then raises up a new people consisting of the broken and the helpless here. You see this? The lame, the blind, the children. He's judging the religious establishment and raising up a new people consisting of the broken and the helpless. This is how God works His saving purposes in every generation. To generate praise for His name. It's just as you read earlier from 1 Corinthians. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Brothers and sisters, do you feel your weakness? Are the circumstances that you're walking through, do you feel them exposing your weakness? Maybe you have a health issue or a relational struggle that's outside of your control. Maybe it's a financial burden that's too great or a situation at work that is over your head. Maybe it's depression or the weight of the responsibility to raise children. Maybe you're serving someone and the needs are so great that you feel overwhelmed and weak, helpless. Maybe someone has called you weak or foolish for choosing to follow Jesus. There are many ways this life can expose you as weak and helpless. And you may feel in these moments, how in the world is God's kingdom going to advance in me today? I'm no stronger than a helpless baby right now. And that's the kind of people God uses to silence his enemies. I know what some of you are going through right now. And yet you're still singing with these children. I heard you just a few minutes ago. 
I see the worship guides cut out and taped over your sinks or pasted on your fridge at home. God stills the enemy and the avenger when you sing praises to Jesus in your weakness and help others to do the same. But what else is Jesus doing here by quoting this psalm? What claim is he making? Psalm 8 is a praise to Yahweh. And Jesus quotes it about himself. The praise that belongs solely to the one God of the universe, Jesus is accepting for himself. This would be the height of blasphemy and insane unless Jesus is truly God. Earlier, Jesus drove people from the temple for their false worship. And here, he accepts and approves true worship. Jesus is the God whose majesty fills the earth. But here he is in human form. Why? There was a guy in church history named Anselm of Canterbury. And he was once known for a similar question. Cure Deus Homo. Why the God-man? Why the God-man? The question is important because the answer strikes at the heart of who Jesus is and what God has done to save us. We need a Savior who is God. Our sin offends the God of infinite worth. God's justice demands that we pay a penalty fitting to that crime against His infinite worth. To satisfy the demands of God's justice, a payment of infinite value was necessary. But only God is of infinite value. And so only God can satisfy God. In order to save us, God had to provide a Savior who was truly God. But we also need a Savior who is man. It is humanity that stands guilty and cursed with death because of the first man Adam, he disobeyed God. We too have sinned in our flesh and are accountable to God's punishment as humans. In order to save us, God had to provide a Savior who was truly man. He needed a new Adam to obey where the first one failed. We needed a a true man who's tempted in every way yet without sin. We needed a human substitute to die for human sinners since the blood of bulls and goats could never forgive sins. In the person of Jesus, we find this very Savior. Jesus is not merely man. He is not merely God. He is the God-man. And He is the world's only hope for salvation. Have you surrendered all loyalties to Jesus? And do you worship Him like these children? Or will you be like the religious authorities here who try in vain to silence the worship of Jesus? 
They're going to try it again later in this chapter. And Jesus says, you tell them to be quiet, the rocks who cry out. Even creation would cry out in worship for who Jesus is. This is a distinguishing mark of Christianity. We worship Jesus as God. If you asked pagans of the 2nd and 3rd centuries what distinguished Christianity from all other religions, the pagans would answer the exclusive worship of Jesus. It's in their writings. They mocked Christians for it. Maybe you've seen some Roman graffiti before that dates back to uh, A.D. 200. There's a, a man bowing before a cross. And on that cross is this figure. There it is. With a donkey head. They're obviously mocking Jesus who died on the cross by putting a donkey's head. But the words say, Alexamenos worships his God. Pagans knew what distinguished Christians was the worship of Jesus. They thought it was ridiculous, as you can see in the picture here, but they knew. Even more, they knew it was subversive. Because here's the thing. The true worship of Jesus cannot be privatized. When you surrender all loyalties to Jesus, by necessity, that will affect your public discourse and engagement. An inward allegiance to Jesus will proactively resist whatever compromises the worship of Jesus. And it will publicly testify to whatever supports the worship of Jesus. That is what it means for Jesus to be Lord. He is Lord of all. And so we serve him in all. When that's your confession, the world will hate you. The world will hate you because Jesus' way is no longer a religious suggestion that's just good for you or a therapeutic pick-me-up. If Jesus is God, then Jesus' way is the only way to live, period. And if you're out of sync with Jesus, then you're out of sync with God. When Jesus came to town, he didn't come to be examined, to win people's approval. He came to examine and to reveal his authority as God and King and Savior. We can't pick and choose what we like or dislike about Jesus. We owe him everything. Let us then join these little children here in singing the praises that rightly belong to Jesus. And let us submit our wills to Jesus in everything in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for sending Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We do confess that he is Lord over all. We thank you for his life, death, and resurrection, which we celebrate now as we come to the table. Amen.